Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. The second half of these interviews are reserved for patrons only. If you like this show, visit my website, pryingpriest.com, for more content and to learn how you can become a patron of the show. Enjoy the first half of this interview. Welcome, Richard Reeves, to the Prying Priest Podcast. Thank you, Father Yuri. I'm very excited to have you on. It's been a long time in the making, and you're finally on. Yeah, me too. So we met originally, oh, it has, right before the coronavirus pandemic really That's took right. hold, right, at, uh, at Transfiguration Monastery. I was wondering, could you share a bit about that story of, of meeting me? It must be like 20 years. It feels, feels like 20 years ago. <laughs> I know, life before the pandemic. <laughs> That's right. Well, it was actually my first time at Transfiguration. It had been recommended to me as a place to go just um, for a retreat. Uh, and it certainly lived up to, to what I'd hoped uh, in terms of the, the experience that I had there. And, um, yeah, we ended up sharing a house, um, sharing one of their accommodations. And we got chatting. It's partly as a result of that that I'm now a student, uh, MTS student at Trinity College, thanks to your recommendation. And uh, we had mm-hmm. some very interesting conversations about some of the questions you were having questions i was having and it was just a a really uh a really wonderful encounter actually so thank you for that mm-hmm. it was it was awesome like i it was it was uh, serendipitous it felt like or uh, providential i should say yes you should <laughs> uh so that was your first trip to a monastery and you were uh, you were living at the time are you still living in washington actually i've just moved i'm spending most of my time now in tennessee so um, oh, okay have a, a place in the mountains on the tennessee north carolina border which has posed some interesting challenges in terms of finding a new a new church actually so mm-hmm. um that's one of the things that i'm struggling a little bit with, with right now there are a couple of options but um because i was chrismated into saint mark's orthodox church in bethesda that feels like home to me so that's uh in, you know just a a bit of a transition but yeah so down here but still working in dc we're all gone remote now i work at the brookings institution i think tank in dc and so right now we're able to work mm-hmm. mostly remotely although we'll see where that ends up just in terms of you know how things pan out but yeah we're all we're all scattered right now Hmm. so before we get into some of your story because you know you're living in the united states but you have this lovely british accent and you know there's a, there's a story there i'm sure before we get into that i'd like to give people the opportunity at the beginning of the show to be able to uh, talk a little bit about you know kind of what you're doing now where people can find you um because i know you have quite a, an extensive online uh presence with blogging and, and i think you have a book out is that right I do. So my last book is called Dream Hoarders, which is about class inequality in the US. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm at the Brookings Institution. That's my day job. Um, and so you can find me there. But I also I'm on Twitter. Uh, so as a lot of people in my line of business are now. So I'm Richard V. Reeves. The the V turns out to be quite important, especially when I moved to the US, because there's another Richard Reeves, who's a very famous historian, who's uh, actually sadly passed now. And he and I actually used to get emails for each other every now and again, asking each other to appear on uh, radio shows or TV shows to talk about each other's books. That especially became true when I yeah, uh, yeah. wrote John Stuart Mill's biography, and he would occasionally uh, be asked to go and speak about Mill. 
and he wrote famously about Nixon. And so I would very often in the UK be asked to go on a radio show and talk about Nixon and Kennedy and so on, thinking that I was the other one. And we'd get emails for each other. Mm -hmm. So he's Richard, was Richard Reeves, uh, and I'm Richard V. Reeves. So I needed to use the Mm -hmm. V to distinguish myself. And in fact, when my last book came out, I I always had a few people in the audience who turned up for the book talk thinking that it's the other Richard Reeves and being startled to find that it was a British guy approximately, yeah, 30 years younger. And so I tended to ask them at the beginning, hands up who's here expecting the other Richard Reeves and then say, if you want to leave, that's fine. Um, which they were usually too polite to do. So yeah, he, um, we have some, he and I had some funny stories about being mistaken for each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's maybe get into the story of how, I guess you ended up in the United States in particular. Let's start there. And then maybe from there, we can actually work earlier, but let's maybe start there. Sure. So moved to the US at the end of 2012. My, I have um, a wife who is American from the US and we wanted our younger two children in particular to finish their education in the US. They're dual citizens. We wanted them to feel like that as well as, as well as to be that on paper. So that was the cause of the move. I'd actually just been in government. I worked in the uh, coalition government in the UK for the first uh, couple of years of that working for Nick Clegg, who was the liberal Democrat. Deputy Prime Minister, doing strategy and policy um, for him as a political appointee. And uh, I decided I didn't want to do the whole time in government. We decided it was time to make a move to the US. Our children were about the right age. So we just made the jump without actually a very kind of fully formulated plan. People were very often asked, did you move for the job? And the answer is no, we moved and then found found jobs. And I was lucky enough to be able to find uh, a job at pretty much the perfect institution for me, which is the Brookings Institution, where I work on public policy. So I've spent most of my career bouncing between journalism, uh, politics, never elected politics, always as an advisor, um, academia and think tanks. And so that's been my, my sort of journey has been as a writer and a scholar and an intellectual. So someone like the Brookings Institution is a, is a great place to land because you're trying to have impact on public policy using scholarship and um, and kind of research. And so that's been a, a good a good home for me um, since moving here. So that was the, the most, uh, I guess that brings us to the last eight years or something. Um, since I moved to the US. I am now a, a US citizen. I, in fact, became a US citizen on the very last day that you could register to vote uh, in my home state of Maryland in, for the 2016 presidential election. So in 2016, I managed to vote both in the Brexit referendum in the UK and in the US uh, presidential election. So as some of my friends said, well, it's all your fault, uh, depending on your point of view. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and I guess, so if we take a step back and, you know, growing up in the UK, which I assume you grew up in, in the UK, mm, yeah. um, the, the, you know, the Anglican church had, at least historically, a very big hold on, you know, the way that people perceived religion and faith. Was Was your upbringing then influenced, like, by the Anglican church in that way? Were you Anglican? What was your... Uh, a ch- what was your upbringing in terms of religion like? I would describe it as mostly secular and Christian, uh, and broadly in the sort of social and community sense. In fact, it it became important. To, so uh, I think it's probably important that we weren't baptized when we were when we were born. It wasn't seen as important enough to my parents at that point. But then my mother actually converted to the Anglican Church. She was a nonconformist from Wales. My mother's Welsh. And uh, she converted to Anglicanism, and she felt it was important that that we be baptized and confirmed. But we were actually baptized and confirmed quite 
at the same time, weirdly, we sort of did did the orthodox thing of having um, you know, what we're calling the Anglican Church baptism and confirmation at the same time. It was just that that wasn't the norm then. Um, but that was actually in my teens. That was in my mid-teens. Um, and that was in our local uh, Church of England church. And at the time, it was very much just honestly a ticking the box kind of thing. Um, I was a member of the Scouts and the Scouts were associated with that church and that's where we'd go at Christmas and Easter and so on. But but I can't say that it was something that I felt committed to. In fact, in some ways I was somewhat opposed to it. Um, but it's interesting, the Church of England as an established church in, in the UK it sort of performs almost like a social, in, it's a social institution, right? It, I mean, it's, you know, mm. most people who know, who know, know this world know that, that it's... Um, you know, it's where it's, you know, baptisms and marriages and deaths and so on. Um, and so interestingly, although the UK is a pretty secular society, it does have this sort of, you know, this infrastructure, this skeleton, if you like, of of the Church of England performing as much a social community role uh, as anything else. And so, you know, the interesting thing is like in the UK, everybody's on a form when you have to put your religion, everyone just puts C of E. Church of England, right? That's just like I mean, I say everybody, but you know, the, the that's the, the norm, right? The default, whether they go to church or not, whether they would consider themselves to be particularly Christian, they just put religion, C of E, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> a bit like blood type or whatever. Um, uh, but I, I was not at all religious. Actually, my my real uh, interest in and attraction to Christianity, which I will say has been on and off, and in a lot of tension with a lot of my intellectual <clears throat> life. I came in at college. I went to Oxford. Um, I was very fortunate to be one of the very few. In fact, I was in, in a second or third from my school to go to Oxford or Cambridge, from my high school to Oxford or Cambridge. And while I was there, I had something of a um, profound re-engagement. Re-engage- I couldn't even say re-engagement, if I'm honest, engagement with Christianity through my college chaplain, through some difficult times I was having with my family, um, and really just my, opened my eyes to a different way of thinking about about faith and my the college chaplain became something of a spiritual father to me during that time such that my first job out of college was actually to work for something called the student christian movement um to work as a, a leader with um uh, what i would describe as sort of highly progressive christians <laughs> on college campuses and so my memory of one of the reasons i was drawn at that time was because the evangelical movement was very strong on college campuses at that time i was at college in the late 80s um, and the Christian Union at Oxford was very strong, and in particular was taking very strong stands on lots of liberal issues, particularly around the sexual orientation and so on. And it, it just felt to me as if that was the choice was either that kind of Christian or atheist, anti-Christian, basically. It didn't feel as much, mm-hmm. and, and it just felt to me based on what I knew that there, there had to be more than that. So I started to explore and then found found ways into uh, faith in Christianity that was much more appealing to me. So I joined the college choir, became quite an active member of the college chapel. And as I said, actually a national leader of the student Christian movement, all to the surprise of my myself as much as my family and, and friends. And then since then, mm. it's been kind of really, honestly, Father Yuri, really difficult, uh, difficult on and off for me. And then even more difficult moving to the US where, I mean, Protestantism in the US is pretty hard to navigate. Um, and so I couldn't find a home. And then Anyway, there's a longer story as to what the last few years have entailed that led me to the Orthodox Church, but perhaps we'll get into that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a question regarding the Christianity that you plugged into when you did go to university. So was your chaplain of a particular Christian denomination? And did you plug into that particular denomination? Or was your attachment to Christianity more of a general or personal kind of, well, I'm going to call myself a Christian and do certain things? Or or did it have a denominational um, bent to to it? Does that question make sense? It does. All the chaplains at Oxford um, are Church of England. I mean, there are also, there are chaplaincies for other faiths, of course, but the main colleges, the, the chapel in uh, each college is associated with the Church of England. So it's an Anglican um, priest, actually, if, uh, and within the Church of England, there's a huge range, uh, of course, and there are very evangelical Anglicans through to, you know, Anglo-Catholics, which is where I ended up. Um, much more being drawn. He was pretty high at that point. He was former evangelical, but had become much more Anglo-Catholic. And and so the form of our college you know, chapels was chapel services were relatively high. Um, um, and I think you would probably describe it describe him as relatively liberal theologically, but just very ecumenical, very interested in different approaches to worship and prayer. So for example, like one week we'd do a head of a Teze service, and then the next week we'd do a joint service of the Roman Catholic Student Society and so on. And um and that was very interesting to me it felt much more it felt much more as if it was a question rather than just an answer whereas a lot of the other christianity that was around was just like here's the answer it's very simple you know there were medical students who would you know who have very strong views about disease being driven by the and they could say they could see see satan on people with um sexually transmitted diseases and so on. they could physically see them and they knew that that was what was what they were dealing with um and i will say that in medical students i just found that a very a very simplistic way to look at theology and so it was always like if i'm honest about it i was partly kind of just annoyed about the way in which the brand of christianity was kind of just being monopolized by a particular i feel similarly to some extent in the us now um by a particular group who just happened to have the simplest views and the loudest voices and this complex nuanced very difficult kind of christianity that i think you you get into when you really start to embrace it was was much more appealing to me and i'll also say that just on a very personal level the at the time my family was going through my parents in particular were going through a difficult time of coming to terms with the death of um my younger sister when she died very very young and were moving back to the place they'd been when she died my sister sean and i was talking to them and i'd never really thought about her she was a year younger than me and died when i was very young and so, so she was in our lives, but never really thought about her. But then my um, family, my mother in particular, really struggling with this this episode. And I remember talking to my priest about it. And the starting question was like, I don't, you know, I just mentioned it almost in passing. And then we started talking a bit about it. And then I started becoming incredibly emotional. And I felt connected to her in a way that I hadn't before. And he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, well, one of the ways that it's useful to think about the death of a child in particular is that they're still growing up, but on the other side of, think about a hedge, some sort of barrier. They're growing up, but on the other side um, in God's in God's care. And something about that image and that way of thinking about Sean, my sister, um, just struck me like um, very, very hard and opened opened a crack to me as thinking differently about the way in which kind of faith faith can interact with with um with our lives and so that personal element to it and i you know remember that conversation to this day and my tears and his compassion and that image and that possibility and that way of thinking about death 
uh, not as an ending, but as part of life was really just quite revelatory to me. A couple of weeks ago, we had Dr. Brian Butcher on, and he has a similar story of his sister who who died um, suddenly. And he's he, the way he described it or its effect in his life was that it makes you grow up maybe faster than maybe other other people would have to grow up. Um, or it makes you come to terms with the realities of, of life and things like that. And it helps you to see... It helps you to see the human experience in a wider array of colors, perhaps, right? You can you can empathize, sympathize with people. Um, you can you can you can see the nuances in existence, and it, it seems like you were always, I guess, interested in the depth and the nuance and the particulars of life and everything like that. And you mentioned, you know, getting a little annoyed with Christians who would just. Well, this is the way it is, and that's that. Um, and I, I guess, what was it about? What's it about your personality that? Because some for some people really like the strongness of those. This is the way it is. That's what I'm going to believe. You know, the Bible says it's so. I'm going to believe it. Right? There's something very strong and powerful about that. That's really attractive to some people, but it seems to have not been attractive to you. It actually is, was repellent to you. So, what is it about you? that that made that that way i suppose it's a a strong belief that life is very complicated (laughs) that we're very complicated and that it's full of mystery um and it's full of unknowing and the the certitude with which certain kinds of christians certainly ones i had that i'd been associated with um, proclaimed their view of right and wrong and good and evil and and so on just struck me as kind of deeply unattractive the very binary nature of it and it's not not to suggest for a moment of course that there are you know, such a thing as truth but it was the the distinct lack of humility with which certain people would would hold that truth that really um, that I found quite difficult so I think it was partly just you know, an inclination towards pluralism. I'm John Stuart Mill's biographer, and so I like. I think that there's something about the particularity of individuals, right, and an individuality. Um, also, the sort of um, degree of moral judgment that's very often kind of contained. You know, there's one of the things that people say about the U.S. now is that people are defined by what they're against rather than what they're for, and I do think that's sometimes a bit of, can be a tendency within certain strains of Christianity as well, which is that, you know, of course there'll be the formulaic stuff there in favor, but what really defines them is what they're against and what they know is wrong with the world rather than what's right with it. And so the, the embrace of complexity, the acceptance of doubt, you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, the, the journey, the recognition that some of it's going to be difficult, that there's no simple answers, that we're all at different stages. And and, and that just, I guess, the individuality in some ways that, that's required from it. And and the love, you know, I just think that the, the lack of love that I felt coming from some kinds of Christians was really very difficult, very difficult. And so, whereas I think that they're just the love and acceptance that you get from from others, which isn't to say there aren't very difficult things, right? I mean, there are, there are great tensions and difficulties here, but I suppose it was a a reaction against simplicity, right? I mean, I just think the simplest thing to do would be to not believe any of this stuff. And if I'm being completely honest, and I suppose that's the point of this kind of podcast, is that I very often find myself praying 
not to believe. Right? My life would be so much easier in some ways if I didn't believe. I mean, just, you know, atheism's pretty straightforward. And in fact, I talked to atheist friends of mine. And they're like, I thought the whole point about being being religious was that it gave you easy answers. And I said, oh, no, if only that was true. It's much easier to be atheist. <laughs> Intellectually, much, much easier. It's kind of the complexity and tension and um, humility is just, it's hard, right? It's really hard. And, and so I think it was the attempt to make things simple. The simplification of so much of that that um, that propelled me. So I guess it's probably a a strong belief that life is very complex, that there are very few binaries, that it's also full of you know tragedy and love and you know, setbacks and hope, and that it's a messy old business this life. Um, and I think that something about the loving acceptance of the messiness of life. Uh, is is really what's that's the kind of approach to faith that most um, appeals to me rather than the attempt to draw bright lines or imagine away the messiness and temptation and difficulty and struggle and suffering that is the reality of of actual existence i think that that approach to understanding the purpose of human life is reflected in the stories of the way that Jesus answered questions, right? So in the Gospels where people approach Jesus and they said, okay, here's a clear theological question for you. What's your answer? And he would tell them a story. And, and, and then he would walk away and everyone would be like, wait, wait, what? Like he yeah. didn't answer the question, but he did. But he, he, I think there's something about recognizing the... Having having a list of here's your ten how to on being human. Here's your how to be human. Top ten, you know, life hacks. That that doesn't work. Right? right. There there's there's things that are humans are much more complex, and there's something about narrative and story that I think helps people to categorize and to think about their experiences. And I think that Jesus was one teacher who absolutely understood. The power of mm. narrative. That's a really nice way to think about it. In fact, I think um, I was reading something from Cass Sunstein recently, who's a legal philosopher, and he opened it with this um, description of an episode of Star Trek, which I vaguely remember, which is you know, Star Trek. He's he's a real sci-fi nerd and philosopher, where there's this encounter with this species who can only speak in narratives, and they oh, really struggle yes, to communicate yes. with each other. Right? Um, everything's a story. Um, uh, and so it takes ages to kind of kind of communicate with each other. It's incredibly powerful because, and I think this is what you're speaking to here, which is this idea of there's a kind of linear way of thinking, right? There's a kind of abstract linear conceptualization, or particularly Western way now of thinking, which is very different to a kind of narrative way of thinking about the world. So different kinds of knowledge. This is a kind of, to use a kind of fancy philosophy, it's an epistemological difference. And I think that that's mm-hmm. what, that, that idea you've just highlighted there is a difference between a legalistic, linear kind of ju- you know, judicial view of the world and a kind of narrative, um, practical, lived, it's complicated, it's messy way of the world. If I just, you know, reading a bit of, um, you know, for the MTS course, reading some of St. Basil the Great right now, and there's this interesting stuff in there who's talking about even if something's allowed, if it's causing hurt or harm to somebody else, then maybe don't do it. Right. And so that's kind of interesting. It's not like, yeah, well, I'm allowed to do this. Right. You know, there's, this is permitted. And so if you have a problem with it, then tough. Right. It's like, actually, no, you have to show love. And so he's talking about it in the specific of eating meats, for example, and kind of bans around eating meats. But it's like, well, if that's causing your neighbor 
you know, some hurt, then just don't do it. And that's, in a, in a way, most of what's just like sensible and good manners, but it is also this interesting idea about it's the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, which I think is that's obviously the part of the new covenant, um, but which is very often lost in certain forms of modern Christianity, which are kind of just a new kind of judicial and legalistic approach to um, to Christianity rather than the one, the narrative uh, agape one that you've just described. The annoying thing about following the spirit of the law is that it inherently is not written down like the letter of the law is right so so i think those of us who have much more of a maybe a legalistic mind or or maybe like an engineering kind of mind like what's the number right what's what's the data right a data driven mind it can be i think rather annoying to have to deal with these narratives and 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 to think about what is the spirit of the law when you could just write down the rule and have the rule for everyone to follow um but of course it doesn't quite work out that way right and it leads us to more of an exteriorized approach rather than an interiorized uh, approach um and a kind of more of a a box ticking and I, i you i can't remember who said this now but again it's something really struck with me is that the questions really is what's what's the direction of travel are you are you moving towards the divine towards god or away right and actually that's more important than kind of where you start from or the speed uh, and so and actually that's that idea of a kind of inclination and a direction uh, is actually a very powerful one i think kind of me it's like it's just like i'm going broadly in the right direction right um uh, and this this is a step in the right direction this is a step against it and rather than okay i've prayed this time and times a day i've kept the fast i've done i've done all this but it's not to say that those practices aren't hugely important but it is you know this is an obvious point but not to mistake the means for the end right um uh, and that's really i think what we're talking about here is that on the one hand you get some versions of theology which will be like well the end is the only thing that matters you don't need to know this church liturgy rules praying fasting nonsense or you just get straight to the business but on the other hand i think you can could kind of take a few which is like there might be some people who are just like going who are doing the right things but not feeling the right things or um or at least kind of ticking the box and so in a sense it's the the importance, and I usually find this in the Orthodox tradition, particularly of the liturgy, um, to be kind of very powerful. And actually, when I when I was chrismated, my my godfather, who'd been one of the founders of the church that I joined, and I sat down with him and asked him about, you know, one of the things we had to talk about was what did what would it mean to be a good Orthodox Christian and take his advice and you know spiritual advice and so on. So I sat down. I remember I had a notebook ready and a pen ready that's how keen i was to learn because this he was cradle orthodox he'd founded this church a wonderful man um really really i have a loving very lovely relationship with him and um so what shall i do and he says well um come to church say your prayers keep the fasts it's like yeah so like, no that's that, that that's it uh and but what i knew what but I knew what he meant by that was not just like everyone's clocking you in and clocking you out. And it's just about like, well, you paint, you, how many, you came to 37 divine liturgies and you managed eight saints days and kind of, no, I wasn't about that. He was just like, just join the church. Just, just like you, you're, you're joining yourself to the body of a church. Just do, just join, do it. Right. And, and there was, it was incredibly liberating. So, you know, I didn't fill up much of my notebook with his advice, you know, like pen or kind of ready. Um, and I was ready for this theology and this kind of advice. And he was like, no, just do that. And that's what he'd been doing 
uh, for his whole life and continue to do. And his example was actually very kind of powerful to me. And, and again, a kind of reminder that somebody like me always has the danger of overthinking things. And that's kind of part of the challenge, I think, with the importance of the intellect, but the limitations of intellect. And I think that's that's kind of where I am in my journey now, which is figuring out those shifting the tectonic plates between intellect and faith and how they bump into each other, how they cross over each other, how they relate to each other. And I'm, you know, just, I'm really in the beginnings of that journey. Yeah, I, I really like that topic too. So I think we'll probably delve into some of that uh, in the Patreon half of the mm-hmm. interview. Uh, I'm hoping now, can we, can we connect your entrance into kind of this Christian faith in your college years all the way till the point that you actually joined the Orthodox Church in the United States? Like, let's connect those dots. Sure. So I'll, I'll try and do it in a way that doesn't, that doesn't have too many dots or too many meanders because it's because it could be a very long story. I'll try and keep it short for the sake of your. Yeah, we got time. Then. We got but time. <laughs> the um, so high Anglican coming out of college actually went to Pusey House a lot, which is the birth of the Oxford movement, um, and a- attending some um, you know London's well. I was in London at that point, well served with Anglo Catholic um, churches, and so attending. But I would say increasingly sporadically and drifting away again and to some extent becoming somewhat wrapped up in my own life and not finding enough of a connection again. So I would say something of drifting away, but then it'd always be a drifting back. I became very good friends with a Roman Catholic through, through work and we would, we would go to mass together for a while and then go, but it was just this con, it was like, um, what sort of like a magnet just like, but then it would reverse. So the, the kept polarizing towards away, towards away, towards away in, out, Never settling, never being quite comfortable. And part of the reason I think for that is because of this whole sense that whilst there was definitely a part of me that was hugely drawn to and needing that sustenance and that connection and that communion, there was another part of me that bit that wouldn't shut up, you know, whichever bit of my brain it is that very often throughout much of the service would be saying, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What, what, what are you doing? Here? It's nonsense. Right? What are you doing here? You, if you'd been born somewhere else at a different time, you'd be Hindu. This is all, this is nonsense. You know, what are you, just that kind of tension between the part of my brain saying, this is ridiculous. And the part of me that's like, yeah, but I'm still here. Right. And just that. And so it's tiring, honestly. Um, but on and off, and I say, and then um, I, because uh, again, was drawn back, and it's interesting. You know, this is unfortunately potentially kind of a bit of a theme. Is that I actually got to drawn back, but this time ahead of the death of another ma- another my other sister. So you know, it's the danger of this becoming like um, somewhat more macabre, maybe than you than uh, than intended. But um, actually, long before that, I'd started going to an Anglo-Catholic church again in North London, become very good friends with the priest there. Um, uh, really extremely close to him and I had this experience where I actually ended up uh, and so my um, my marriage um, failed so this is another part of the story my first marriage ended and I ended up living with him in the chaplaincy and my the, my room was right next to where the bells were so 
I, the, and he'd always ring the bells for morning prayer. And so it's like, well, literally my wall was like shaking next to my bed with the bells. And so I pretty much usually get up and go to morning prayer. And the interesting thing was very often I was the only one. So he, you know, Father, Father David would have been up and down there. And then I would stumble, I would go down a bit bleary eyed and join him. And very often it was just the two of us. And uh, occasionally I wouldn't be there. And I, I said to him, well, what do you do when, when I'm not there? Do you, do you still, do you still do it and he's like of course you have to sanctify the church and of course and, you know the point is not how many are there saints are always with us um and and he had quite an influence on me and then actually got quite close to my sister and then my other sister died and he ended up presiding at um my my sister's funeral and so he became quite a close family friend and that was again a kind of important moment to have somebody like him kind of in my life at such an important juncture and it's almost like it was almost meant to be that before through this very difficult period of my life um in many ways he kind of come to me so anglo anglo catholic and that really drew me back to anglo catholicism for a while um but then again off again and then uh, i wrote was off writing about mill very much in my mind again and on and off right i ended up being a scout leader we're liquor scouting being part of my life and and what i discovered was that i had absolutely no problem with the scout promise about you know believing in god um and as part of that we would do lots of church visits and and that weirdly drew me back but then i think probably in this sort of dynamic with my kind of intellect again it's just very very tough i think to to describe that and so i was kind of more off again when i came to the us but then drawn back to it and again moments of crisis and this time drawn it's really drawn by the number of colleagues i had who are roman catholics um who i really came to admire the work, the way they were in the world, and so for quite a while, I was um, actually a pretty regular attender at Roman Catholic Church in um, in probably two three years, and actually went through most of the um, rite of initiation of, of adults. But then we came into this issue about certain aspects of Roman, Roman Catholic theology didn't quite work, and so the short version and the honest version is that I had some problems with them, but it turned out they had some problems with me too because I was divorced and I'd been married and I was married again. But that's no problem because you can just annul a marriage. But and it turns out that you can just say things about what your state of mind was and and evaporate it. I was like, no, I don't want to annul the marriage. I think it was great tragedy. It's also great grief to me. I don't. It's not disposable. You can't just like uh, and it comes over well, here. You only here. It's almost like a formula, right? Talk about legalistic, and that really kind of set me back on my heels. And and I realized that. I didn't want, I, I couldn't, I mean, I didn't believe it. And obviously you can't start your journey like that. Um, but also to me, like the whole idea that you could annul a marriage really kind of struck me as odd. And, mm-hmm. but also then like, where does that go? I mean, go. And actually I found, so there was a, a ceremony of acceptance and welcoming, which I couldn't be part of. And as my wife said at the time, said, how do you feel about the fact you couldn't be part of the welcoming and acceptance ceremony? Because <laughs> I hadn't solved this problem, I, this problem I had, right? Mm-hmm. Which I could have solved, right? And my ex-wife would have been fine. You know, she would have said whatever I wanted. Um, but I thought I had no idea what to do. And this is the bit where it's always embarrassing once you've been converted. It's like, huh. And I ended up going to an Orthodox church that, the following Sunday. St. Mark's Orthodox Church in Bethesda. And it was revelatory. It was just like from the mo- almost the moment 
I walked in. I mean, first of all, you're like, oh, sorry, what? I knew I knew a little bit about orthodoxy, but not much. And what, but sorry, what's going on? But at the same time, as people will say very often, it's like I felt immediately like home. And then as I talked to um, my, my priest, Father Gregory, about my situation, and he said, well, in the Orthodox Church, you can be Orthodox, but there are issues around, you know, here's how we view marriage and the penitential nature of second marriages, although I'd already been married in a civil way. I thought that's exactly right, actually. I thought that I thought it was just exactly right, which was now I might think that because it suited me. So that's always the danger, right? Here's right, right. We're all very good at rationalizing things that suit our own position. But on the other hand, it also felt it just felt right to me that the approach they were taking was right. And and so I ended up um becoming very um very drawn and uh, feeling home and so the result was to be um, to be chrismated, and it really mattered. I remember actually just becoming catechumen, and I sent a WhatsApp to my wife saying immediately, one of the things about being catechumen is you can be buried as an Orthodox Christian. And I sent a message that night saying, from now on, I can be buried as an Orthodox Christian. And actually, I remember feeling that was incredibly important to me, and it wasn't I hadn't gone away. But that, that was a like, and I actually I felt a profound relief about that that even just at that point that, that I knew that would I, you know, I was driving to a friend's party that night. If, if I had died that night, that from that point on father Gregory could bury me and I could have an Orthodox burial. And I know that again, it sounds a bit macabre and maybe this whole interview's got that feel now, but, but actually I remember that was incredibly happy. That made me incredibly happy to know that. And I was really surprised by that. I was like, why does that, why does that make me so happy? But it really, it really did. And then, the theological explorations I've just found very interesting and this tension between intellect and faith, finding a space for resolution or at least for proper explanation for me within the Orthodox tradition, precisely because of the recognition that there is mystery, um, there's tradition, uh, and so there's an obedience to tradition and the wisdom of the ages, but there's also an acceptance of mystery. Uh, and I think that that's incredibly important because I found the attempts to, to the attempts to solve the kind of intellect faith problem in some of Western Christianity to be just to, to turn faith into an intellectual exercise, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and that that just that just doesn't work and never will work. Um, and I tried that, and quite a lot of Roman Roman Catholic theology does that. I mean, somebody said that the attempts by Roman Catholic theologians to, to do uh, figure out transubstantiation becomes molecular chemistry. Basically, there's a certain point where they're literally like, at what exact point do the molecules, whereas the Orthodox is just like, yes, we know it happens and it happens roughly at this point, but we are not going to spend like years of trying to figure out precisely at what point in the liturgy it takes place and precisely when the molecular transformation takes place. And that's a kind of great example, I think, of just the limits of intellect and being humble about the limits of them. Uh, and actually, for me, the humbling of the intellect is, in a sense, the central challenge for me and the only way that i can progress a lot of western christianity treats humans like brains on sticks right that that our faith is bound up with what we think and i've mentioned it a couple of times on this podcast but if my faith was only dependent on what i think day to day I would be a leaf in the wind, right? That uh, a metaphor that I've used in the past, and I'm not sure if I've used it here, but if you know, if my whole being is a ship on a on a on an ocean, right? The 
flag on the top, which waves in the wind, is my intellect. But the actual boat itself is my faith, which means my ritual, my life, the way that I behave towards others. Um, that, that often it is, well, it is our personal rituals that define what we believe about the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, and those things ideally need to be in union with each other, right? Uh, the Orthodox liturgical services are designed to help you think about the world in the right way, right? They're designed to actually bring to fruit the proper intellect, right? So Orthodox worship is not, well, let's decide what we believe on a, on a list of a sheet of paper and then figure out worship that coincides with what we believe. It's sort of the opposite, where we actually gather in worship and we behave physically and um, and we sing together and we move together and we say specific words together, and that begins to form the way that we actually view the the world in our everyday life. Um, I wasn't yeah, no, going anywhere particular with that, but you can take it away from there. No, if you I like. think the that idea of integration. I think the brains on sticks is a great a great example, uh, a great a great picture of it, and. And I think that the, you know, the challenge I think also for people who are, you know, who who want to think their way to the right way of being Christian, think their or, way to heaven, right? Like, um, and so then it becomes this kind of question of like, on the one hand, I agree with this bit of that, and I agree with this, but and then you end up actually that uh, I think is one of the things that leads to a kind of slightly kind of pick and mix approach to these things and the whole kind of spiritual but not religious thing. I kind of want to imagine, so I'm actually, I'm religious, but more than spiritual. But I think that what I mean by that is that the very const, uh, the channels for thought. So when we think about the literature, the, just really playing back what you were saying, Father, is this idea of these channels uh, to help uh, to stream, to channel our thoughts and our actions have been dug for a long time, right? And they've been dug and maintained for a long time by people who knew what they were doing. Um, and this is a sense of like, how does it channel our energy, our actions, our thinking, and so on. And in a way that recognizes that we are not brains on sticks, we are brains and we are thoughts and feelings and faith and, you know, uh, and and so that kind of integrated approach, um, I think that is hugely important, you know, for me too, because it's like, even if you're you know, one way to hump, you know, to put your own individual intellect into a more submissive stance is through use of the body, for example. Right? And so I think the kind of use of the body um, and of sight and smells and prayer and so on is actually a very powerful way, powerful way to bring another part of you into, into the equation in a way that helps to not to quash the intellect, but to keep it, to keep it in its, in its place. Right. Um, and as you say, not to stop thinking, but to think differently. Right. You, re, you know, I think we know enough, uh, I think we know enough now about how the human brain works to know that what we do changes our brain circuitry and therefore changes the way we think, right? It's not like they're separate, right? Doing and thinking are not, we don't think and then do something. Actually, very often we're, we're doing it before we've really, I don't know, I'm probably getting a bit of audio feedback now. I don't know if you can hear that or not, but there's a dog oh, barking in the, the background, dog. so I apologize if you can hear it. Yeah, <laughs> But no, this idea good. of thinking, thinking, you know, thinking and doing, um is uh, i think it's one of the things that really comes across and it, and it strikes you very much immediately in the liturgy as well and it's probably one of the reasons why i found anglo-catholicism um quite powerful right the the very you know very high 
church services. And I think it was precisely because they were very sensory, very physical, very, you know, actually very orthodox in that sense. I mean, if you go to Pusey House in Oxford, then the form of worship there is not the same, of course, but there are aspects to it which are highly physical, which take the body very, very seriously. Um, and so in some ways, I think it now makes more sense to me why that was so appealing to me. So we have about two and a half minutes left in the public episode. And before I ask you the last question of the public episode, I want to tease the audience with what I'm going to be talking, what I want to ask you about in the Patreon half. And in particular, I want to, you know, basically learn from you about issues of economics and things like that. And, and to talk a little bit about the intersection of, um, faith and particular orthodox christian faith and then the intersection of that with maybe liberalism and and you know pluralism in in western society and how that all fits together right the orthodox mindset is still very let's say a lot of orthodox people like the idea of kings and queens so to speak having a very hierarchical structure uh, but we do live in like a liberal pluralistic society which values egalitarianism and individuality and and things like that so yeah i'm excited to talk to you about that so if you want to hear that discussion you can become a patron by going to pryingpriest.com slash support uh but for the rest of the public podcast richard um some of the guests i've had on the podcast have described experiences of God or experiences of spirituality or however they might explain it, where they feel the presence of God or maybe they've received a word or had a vision or or things like that. I've also had guests that have never felt that way before, right? Have never had any kind of special spiritual experience. What about you? Is, is there any time where you felt a connection with God that was maybe more palpable um, than other times um, or, or not? How would you characterize that? I'd say that I have had some experiences and in particular since um, my uh, sister died, some quite strong sense of her still being with us in some sense, which is not the same as experience of God, of course, and compatible with other kinds of kind of theology, but, but nonetheless a kind of real opening Um I had also, I had an experience actually in a monastery in the northeast of, of um, uh, England where I did feel almost like a physical sensation. I felt like a hand on my shoulder. And that sounds very odd and it's almost embarrassing to sort of say in some, some places. But, um, but it really did feel like it was like f- felt physical to me. I remember vividly, vividly remember just sitting, sitting and feeling that. And then the last experience was actually with a friend of mine who was, you know, pretty devout atheist, I would say, who died in um, a couple of years ago. And I was with him towards the end. And at one point his, uh, he died of cancer. And at one point the room was, I think, full of about 13 medical technicians. And his face was just completely full of peace and light. And I said, James, what are you, what are you seeing? And he said, I'm seeing God. And, and I said, are you afraid? He said, no, not anymore. And he said to me, are you afraid? And I said, no, not anymore. We're both like, his face was just incredible. And meanwhile, there was a psychiatrist saying, well, it's quite a common side effect and this could be the drugs. And And I was looking around and I was like, am I going to be the only one that says, maybe we should take what he's saying seriously, right? I can't prove it using your clipboards and all the rest of it. I thought, well, am I, am I, am I the Christian in the room? And he was not a Christian, but 
that face, that description, there is just absolutely no doubting it in my mind. And so that was another real moment for me where I've had these experiences. But to kind of tease, tease maybe we're kind of going further, I, I have on my refrigerator two, two magnets. One is a portrait of John Stuart Mill based on, actually from the cover of my book, the biography of the great liberal philosopher and in some ways anti-Christian philosopher, John Stuart Mill. And then on the other, I have um, the icon of the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary, uh, next to each other. And at some point, I got to sort that stuff out. And, and so I sort of feel like, I'm, like I've spent my whole life trying, trying to just sort those things out by keeping them as far away from each other as possible. And to some extent, the people and even coming on a podcast like this, frankly, is, you know, to some extent, it's a little bit difficult. You know, it's uncomfortable for me, right? Because I've so successfully compartmentalized my life. Um, but it feels to me like one way or the other, that is, that's a sort of challenge for me. And at the risk of lacking any humility whatsoever, I think that actually the challenge of how certain approaches to pluralism and liberalism and individuality square with or intention with or in creative acknowledgement with orthodox theology is something that uh, I just you know I'm I'm in my 50s now Father Yuri and I really you know just feel like I'm just getting started on that project so I'm not even in the foothills yet but I'm pretty excited to try and go that way and try and integrate myself so that's maybe something we can talk a bit more about You've just finished listening to the first half of this interview. Find out how to access the second half by visiting my website, pryingpriest.com. We'll see you next time. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside?